And so I would like for you this morning to open your Bibles with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage how to really live. And I assume that's a topic that everybody has some interest in. How do I not waste my life? How do I live this life to the fullest? How do I live an abundant life as a Christian? What do I need to keep in my mind if I'm going to live an abundant life and bear fruit as a Christian? Well, these verses, three verses is all we're going to look at. These three verses give us perhaps the most important principle that if grasped, if lived into, if rightly understood and applied to your life, if these become your reality, then your life will bear fruit pleasing to the Lord and satisfying to the Christian who lives by the word of God. So let's look at these three powerful verses together. John chapter 12, starting in verse 24. God's word says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father in heaven, would you grant us to understand these verses and apply them in ways far beyond what I even know to preach? Lord, would you have your way with us as we sit under your word this morning. We pray and we beg in desperation from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do this morning is wed this text of Scripture to revival. Revival in general, but then one revival in specific that happened 120 years ago in Korea. So first, generally, Revival is something that I have consistently prayed for for the last 20 years. I've prayed for that for myself. I've prayed for that for my family. I've prayed for that for my children. I've prayed for that for this church. I've prayed for that for our pastors. I would absolutely love this side of heaven to be a part of a true revival. My best friend through high school, his name was Michael Demeray. He went to Wheaton College in Chicago uh, for undergrad. He was there 94 to 98, and there was a revival that came onto that campus in 1995. That revival started as one student, he was an athlete on one of their, uh, one of their teams. He began openly confessing in a group of people that he'd been looking at pornography. And it led that campus, hundreds more came confessing the same thing, and it sparked a massive revival that lasted weeks and weeks. I've read different books on revival. I love the, uh, the New York City Prayer Revivals of 1858. It's a great book. I've read about the Welsh revivals. I've read about, maybe you don't know about, the Kentucky revivals of 1800 that swept through Kentucky. 
Many of you may have read Ian Murray's excellent book called Revival and Revivalism. Most recently, I read a book, this book. I actually borrowed it from Pastor Ryan, and it's got all of his notes in it, which is a double sweet uh, little blessing to read his little scribblings beside each page. But I, I recently read this book in the last month, and it has hugely encouraged me. In fact, a lot of the illustrations that I'll share this morning come directly out of this book. It's called The Korean Pentecost, put out by Banner of Truth. Uh, the Korean Pentecost and the sufferings which followed. It's excellent. I also listened, watched while driving to and from Nashville, Tennessee for a cross-country meet. I was in my truck by myself and watched. You know, if you get on those YouTube videos, it'll start one and then it'll automatically dump you to the next that's related in theme. So I listened to about six hours while driving. I didn't really watch the videos, but listened to testimony of this very revival and found myself hugely, greatly encouraged. One common element of every revival is this. God brings his people to see their sins afresh, and he leads them to deep, open, honest, real repentance of all kinds of sins. When Christians begin taking their sin very seriously and repent humbly and openly and deeply over their own sins, God uses that repentance and deep contrition over their sins to spark revival in others and to bring life to many. So let me tell you about the Korean revival of 1907. I'll begin with the story of a Welsh missionary named Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas actually ministered in Korea in the 1860s before this revival took place. He was 17 years old when he was converted, or he was a little younger when he was converted. He was raised by a pastor, preached his first sermon when he was 17. His first sermon was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a good first sermon to preach. Uh, well, he uh, married at age 19, and he and his wife landed in Shanghai, China in 1864. His wife, Caroline Thomas, died very unexpectedly within three months of landing in China. She had a miscarriage and then died of dysentery a few months later. Through God's providence, Thomas ended up traveling over to Korea and distributed a number of Bibles while in Korea, acquired the language, had a successful first trip, came back to China, and then looked for a way to make his way back, found a trading boat that he hopped on. They were bringing goods, trading up and down a river, and he was bringing Bibles that he was trading or giving away up and down the river. Well, the boat was attacked it was lit on fire. He came off the boat, waving a white flag in one hand and carrying Bibles in the other, and he knelt in front of an executioner who took off his head, but not before distributing Bibles. And one of those Bibles found its way into a 12-year-old little boy, his hands. That 12-year-old little boy happened to be the son of the executioner. Well, this 12-year-old read the Bible. He actually read it and got saved years later and planted a church in Pyongyang, which is the capital of now North Korea. Well, at the turn of the century, so fast forward about 40 years from that, missionary work closed after he was beheaded. Uh, there was two decades or so where there was no missionary work going on in Korea because of the dangers of sharing the gospel there. But the door opened again uh, towards the turn of the century. But at the time, Korea was less than 1% Christian. 
that would change through what has come to be known as the Pyongyang Revival of 1907, what many have called the Korean Pentecost. There was a large meeting of about 1,500 Christians in Pyongyang. In anticipation of that meeting, many Christians were desperate and pleading before God. The country itself was struggling, the people were struggling, and they found themselves very desperate. And during the meetings, the leaders of this meeting became personally overwhelmed by their own sins and their need for repentance in their own lives. Leaders began confessing openly their sins to one another, hidden sins before God. Things like jealousy, and not just jealousy in general, but I've been jealous of you. Anger, envy, pride, stealing from one another, sexual immorality committed among one another, and more. One particular missionary, his name was Dr. Robert Hardy, he was from America, came to Korea with a PhD in theology and in medicine, so this is a smart guy. He was ministering there for about a year before this revival took place, and God led him in the midst of this revival to have, possess, a profound sense of his own sinfulness. The sin that began to grip Dr. Hardy's heart that he began to confess openly was the sin of racial prejudice against the Korean people. He confessed to possessing a sense of white superiority against the Korean people. Uh, as a white Western missionary who looked down on the indigenous people of Korea and the Lord just began to deal with them. And he began confessing that openly at these services and confessed it as deep evil and wickedness in his own heart. Well, to his surprise, the Korean people responded to his repentance with their own sets of repentance saying, you know what? We didn't listen to your message because we knew that you were bringing us this message filled with pride. And so we closed our ears to the message of the cross because it was delivered in such a proud way. It was offensive to us. But that's our sin of not listening to the message, the content of this Jesus you've been telling us about. This two-way repentance. Leader confessing, I've looked down on you and preached to you in a way that was proud. And them responding, we've responded to your proud preaching with our own set of pride. This two-way confession of sin had a huge impact on the spread of revival in the country. The whole crowd began weeping over their sins together, crying out for mercy from God. Many of them began praying at the same time. Here's how one pastor described this service of repentance. He wrote about it this way. He said, The sound of many praying out all at once brought not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a great mingling of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayers sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. Just as on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place and one accord praying, God came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. As prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep which led the whole audience to begin weeping. He continues, All evening, man after man would stand to his feet, 
confessed sins until he wept and threw himself on the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. One man tried to make a confession. He broke down in the midst of it all and cried to me across the room saying, Pastor, is there any hope for me or am I too great of a sinner? He threw himself on the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after one person confessed, the whole audience would break out into audible prayer and the effect of those audible prayers of hundreds of people praying together out loud was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, another would break out into uncontrollable weeping. It was as if the whole crowd could not help it. This meeting went on until 2 a.m. like this with weeping, confession, and praying. Well, what happened that night in Pyongyang actually ended up happening the next day, and the next day, and the next, and the beginnings of revival were born in Korea through tear-filled repentance and desperate praying and crying out to God for mercy. This sparked a great awakening in Korea that would move from village to village, from town to town, and from person to person. People began coming to Christ left and right. Churches were being planted. Christians would begin gathering together for very early morning prayers. 5 a.m. they would gather and pray together, and then they would come together in the evening and pray many times all the way through the night. Northern Korea specifically was becoming a stronghold of Protestant Christianity in Asia, so much so that Pyongyang became known as the Jerusalem of the East. Well, in the middle of it all, any of you know anything about Korean history, you know that Korea was facing all kinds of political pressure from Japan and political turmoil within the country that eventually led to the division of the country into North Korea and South Korea, which led, that was in 1948, which led many Christians in North Korea to flee to South Korea for safety because of communism. But in 1907, back to 1907, as this revival was taking place, Again, Korea at the time was less than 1% Christian. Very few Christians there. A century later, today in South Korea, there are over 10 million followers of Jesus. 10 million. Get this, South Korea is second only to the United States in the number of missionaries that it sends around the world to be missionaries which is shocking because its population is only the size of California and Florida combined. You're talking 50 million people, and they send the second most largest number of, of missionaries around the world. My question is, how does all that happen? How does that happen? John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. According to Jesus, what is the key to a seed bearing fruit? It's not rocket science. That seed has to die. 
You hold a grain of seed. You hold a simple seed in your hand. It will never do anything. It will remain a seed. But if it falls into the ground and it dies, it will bear more fruit than you would have ever imagined. Jesus says, in order to live, you have to die, period. Death is necessary for life. Now, the context of these verses is that Jesus himself is about to go to the cross. The verse just before, verse 23, is my hour has come. That hour is pointing to the time of his death. He literally himself is about physically to die. And he's talking about the life that he's going to bring to others through his death. This is the gospel at the very center of our faith. Gathered here on a Sunday morning after Thanksgiving, I can tell the tryptophan is starting to work on some of you. You're settling in. All right, hang with me. This is the gospel right at the center of our faith. And it is not, it's my assumption that not everybody here knows, believes, loves the gospel. So let me make sure that the gospel is explicit and plain. We have, here's the gospel. We have all, every one of us, sinned against a holy God, the one true holy God. And our sin separates us from that God. Yet the one true holy God has not left us in our sins. He has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a life that none of us have ever lived. He never had to confess and repent of any sin of himself. He was perfect and sinless and spotless. And then though he had no sin that he should die. He chose to die in our place. We just sang all about it. He lived the life that we never lived, could not live, and he died the death that we, our sins, deserve to die. And the good news keeps getting better because once he died, he didn't stay dead. But three days later, he was raised from the grave. And through his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death and hell. And he has made eternal life possible to anyone, anywhere, who would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He fully forgives everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. Anyone who repents and believes will have eternal life life. Now, don't assume just because you're sitting here in a church service on a Sunday morning that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The question is, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in him? And are you living a life of obedience and worship in response to him? Jesus died that we might live. Very literally, his death brings life. But get this in this passage, Jesus is not only talking about his death on the cross that would bring life to those who would believe in him. He's also talking about every follower of his. Look at what he says next in verse 20, uh, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus He's not only talking about his death, he's also talking about our lives. Jesus is saying in this passage, if you want to live, you have to die. It's what Jesus means when he says that you have to hate your life in this world. 
What he's getting at is that we, as followers of his, must grow, grow to hate life in this world, life that's caught up in rebellion against God and his word and his ways. He's saying, don't live like that, die to life like that. He actually says this kind of thing repetitively throughout his earthly ministry. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. A cross is an instrument of death. Let him take it up daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, this is not advanced Christianity. This is not like the, the super uber mature ones do that. This is basic Christianity. This is introductory to the Christian life. This is not just for the mature. It's introductory to following Jesus. In order to be a Christian, you must die. Galatians 2.20 is the testimony of every follower of Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus now lives in me. I don't live anymore. It's Christ now who lives in me. Jesus is my life. To live in the next world, you must die to this world. Death is the non-negotiable requirement for you to bear fruit that lasts. And this is exactly what happened in Pyongyang in 1907. And the beautiful thing about it is they didn't discover some novel truth, some new thing, some little side thing. They just simply came to experience in a fresh way personally that death precedes life, that in order to live, you have to die. Now, because this is a bit of an abstract theological category, I want to work it out in three particular concrete ways. What does it mean to die as Christians? What does Jesus mean by this? So I've got, I've got three ways that I want you to think about in order to live First of all, you must die to sin. You must die to sin. Life in this world is set against God and his ways, and it's that life, the one that is set against God, that has to die. Now, by this, I do not at all mean that the Christian, once they're converted, once they become a Christian, they're never going to struggle with sin again. Every Christian is going to struggle with sin until their faith becomes sight and they see Jesus face to face. You're going to struggle this side of heaven. Uh, James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways, but that is just the thing. Real Christians, there's a struggle. We don't like our sin. True Christians actually despise their sin. Their taste buds for sin have changed. We hate that we're so prone to sin. We don't want to sin. We don't toy with sin. We don't practice our sin. We don't like our sin. When a Christian does sin, there's something within our heart that breaks over that sin. We're not nonchalant and casual about our sins. We do not treat our sins as something trivial. And this is sadly something I rarely see among God's people. Even in counseling rooms around Emmanuel, now I have boxes of Kleenex. I should have bought stock years ago in, in Kleenex. Uh, we go through boxes and boxes of tissues. There's plenty of crying in counseling rooms. But I tell you, the vast majority of our crying is not over our own personal sinfulness, 
but rather it's often the sins of others towards us and the trial and grief and hardship of living in a fallen world and all the difficulties that brings that produces tears. Rarely, not never, but rarely are there tears put in another's eyes over grief of their own personal sinfulness. But that is precisely what happened in Pyongyang in 1907. God opened their eyes to see their sin in a fresh way, and they hated it. Specifically, it was church leaders, pastors, missionaries who came to see their sins very clearly, and they hated it and began confessing very openly, here's my sin. Here it is. Rooms full of people began taking their sin seriously. They grew tired of glossing over sin as if sin were no big deal. And brothers and sisters, I cannot help but think that we're missing some of this. Now, not totally. I see some steps in those directions among us. I'm thinking of a couple stories. I know one community group leader that openly confessed to his group a particular sin that led another in his group to confess similar. There's some of this, but I don't see it by and large. I don't see it even in my own life in the ways that I want to see it. Just ask yourself this. When was the last time that you were personally brought to tears over your own personal sinfulness before God? Do you, do you possess an actual hatred, a deep hatred, so much so that when we gather for worship, we weep over our sins? When was the last time this happened even in your presence? When was the last time that you were with another person who was totally broken down before God, pleading with him for mercy personally, confessing their sins openly, saying, I am so full of sins before you. Oh, God, have mercy on me. What would happen if we gathered here on a Sunday morning and something like that were to happen here, brothers and sisters all over this room just coming clean of hidden sins, things like pride, arrogance, harshness, rudeness, anger, fits of rage, grumbling against the Lord, sexual sins, greed, laziness, entitlement, Immodesty, stealing, disobedience to parents, hatred towards others, jealousy of others, harshness in family life, discontentment in single life, just confessing all kinds of sins with tears in our eyes and cries going out, pleas for mercy from God because of our sins. What would that be like? Where are the Ezra-like tearing of our clothes and pulling out our hair and sitting in dust all day to mourn and grieve the sinfulness of our sins? Where is the Isaiah-like, woe is me, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Where is the David-like against you and you only have I sinned, oh my God? Now, this is not something that any pastor or any leader can manufacture and coerce out of God's people. If we tried to do that, it would be really ugly. We'd get into that over-under-repentance kind of stuff that's man-centered, 
over-repenting things that we should have kept discreet and under-repenting giving, giving impressions that were really giving you the real deal. It can't be manufactured. This is a work of the Spirit of God to bring out genuine, true repentance, which leads me to say we ought to be a people that are pleading with God to give us the real thing pleading with him for mercy to give us genuine hatred of our sins, which leads to the second death that I see in scripture and in the Korean revival, which is this. You have to die to self. You have to die to sin. Secondly, you have to die to self. Deny self. It is no longer I who live. Why did that revival break out in 1907? The Korean church was absolutely desperate for God. And in their desperation, they knew they were in a tough spot politically and socially. They knew they were in a bad place as a country. And in their desperation, they were brought to pray. They prayed a lot. It's an interesting mark of every true revival is prayer has a prominent place in revival. That New York City revival of 1858, it was a prayer revival. People would gather during their lunch hour to pray. Well, the background of what was happening is the stock market had just crashed. People in New York City were hungry and jobless and desperate. What do we do when we're hungry, jobless, and you got kids you cannot feed? What else can we do? We pray. We're desperate for the Lord. Korea was desperate like that. And what did they do in their desperation? They prayed. This is, by the way, why Emmanuel Pastors about 15 years ago took away discipleship classes for a good long season and said, we're going to pray when we gather on Sunday mornings. We are going to live this desperate life for the Lord. Prayer is one of the best ways we can die to ourselves. It expresses that we are desperate for God. But let me just ask, how much of our praying is desperate? How much of it? Us begging God for mercy, crying out to him in desperation. A lot of our praying is us bringing requests to God, which is fine. It's good. It's healthy. We ought to bring God a lot of our requests. We pray for all of the missionaries we've sent out and our church planters. We ought to pray like that. But where is the desperate pleading to God for mercy for us personally? Is personal confession of sins even prominent in our praying? I think we have room to grow in that direction. At Emmanuel, we currently have, uh, Ryan just went through the numbers at the second part of the annual meeting that we have. We have 688 members every Sunday morning. We have two prayer gatherings, 55 minutes of praying, three adult education classes with about 25 minutes of praying, 30 minutes of teaching. The average attendance in all of those rooms over this last year is 150. There's roughly around 150 more that are serving somewhere in the building during that hour. Emmanuel Kids, Emmanuel Youth, Welcome Team, Music Team, those kinds of things. But that leads well over half of us that don't attend those prayer services. And I know, I know that you can be a praying, prayerful, prayer-filled person and not attend the corporate prayer gatherings that we have. But the reality is my hunch would be many of us are prayerless. And prayerlessness is basically us saying to God, you know what? We can do this life without you. But the reality is we can't. We need God. Prayerlessness at its root is pride. 
The reality is we cannot live without prayer. Our marriages aren't going to make it without God. Our children are not going to make it without God. Our church won't survive without God. Our sanctification itself will stall without prayer, specifically the kind of prayer that pleads with God, give us mercy and humbly repents to him in desperation. We can do nothing apart from him. If we, if we believe we need God, we will pray. In order to live and to bear fruit as Christians, we have to die to sin. We have to die to self or self-reliance. Thirdly, in order to live, you have to die to the ways of this world. Jesus literally says, it's verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In order to live, you have to hate this world. More specifically, we have to hate the kind of life that is consumed with the ways of this world, the stuff of this world, the things of this world, the trends of this world, the appetites of this world, the pleasures of this world. Let me ask you a question. How much can you truly say of yourself, I hate this world, I hate it? Is that reflected in how you dress? in how you talk, in what you listen to, in your priorities and what you scroll online and how you spend your time, your energy, your money and what you do and how you act when no one else is watching and the friends that you gravitate towards and how you treat those that you're living out life with. If you are hating this world, the reality is the world's gonna hate you back and you're gonna feel it. That's just the reality. If you're hating this world, you're going to feel something of the world hating you in return. Korea, it was annexed by Japan in 1910. North Korea fell to communism in 1948. Both Japanese occupation and communism wreaked havoc on the church and brought long seasons of terrible persecution. One of the main issues that Christians faced during Japanese occupation in Korea was the government required what was called Shinto shrine worship. The Japanese rulers set up shrines all over the country and required that Korean citizens would bow down before these shrines. Some Christians and pastors justified that action saying it's just an act of patriotism. But many refused and those who refused, it cost them dearly. Kids were kicked out of schools. Many lost their jobs. Many were thrown into prisons, nurses, fathers, pregnant mothers. One pastor of a large Presbyterian church, his name was Chu Kachol, was arrested in 1938 for refusing to bow down to shrines. He was put in prison for six months, and then questioned and released. And as soon as he was released, well, it took about two weeks, as I recall, but within two weeks, he went right back into the pulpit, mustered up the courage, and believed God was leading him to preach openly that bowing down at the feet of shrines was idolatry. Well, an undercover detective was in the congregation uh, when he preached that, and he was arrested again, his young children crying as they dragged him away. The church met together after that, at 5 a.m. every morning for prayer, even in bitter cold months. And they prayed not that their pastor would be released from prison, but that he would have strength to stand strong in the midst of torture. 
and persecution. In the days to come, he was tortured. He was flogged many times as his captors tried to persuade him to bow down, but he never gave in. He withered in a prison for six years. He went without food or water for 20 days. The day before he died, his wife came to visit him, and his body is languishing away, and here's what he said to her. He said, I've gone the road I was supposed to go. Follow my steps. Let's meet in heaven. One of Chukachol's sons followed in his father's steps as an evangelist across South Korea before he too was martyred. The amount of converts, committed followers of Jesus that came out from those efforts is reported to be thousands. And I'll say it again, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Kim Yunsup became a Christian at age 20, became a pastor shortly after, then later an evangelist. He was arrested 10 different times. Every time he was arrested, he was tortured badly. They would take bamboo shoots and shove those bamboo shoots underneath his fingernails and pull his fingernails off. They would stretch his back out on a bench, point his head backwards, and take a kettle of water and pour it over his nose to simulate drowning him, sometimes putting red pepper in the water to increase the pain. They branded his body multiple times with irons. They would use the back of a chair as a fulcrum to bend his body backwards and then try to bend him forwards to force him into a bowing position, facing a shrine in the police station in the area, uh, thinking that if they could just get this man to bow down to a shrine, it would weaken him. But he would fight, kicking and screaming, and when they realized they couldn't beat him into submission, they decided that they would release him for a time and let him taste of freedom again with his wife and his children, his family, and his church. When he re refused to bow down still, they'd yank him away, put him back in prison with his four-year-old son crying uncontrollably. I love this part of his story. After his eighth arrest, he was in a spiritually weakened state and seriously contemplated suicide while in prison. And in a spiritually weakened state, he found himself willing to recant and bow down to the shrine. And so they released him eventually. Well, the Lord brought this man to full repentance, tear-filled repentance of his own weakening. He began repenting and saying again, bowing at the feet of shrines is idolatry. So, of course, they yanked him away again, put him back in prison, tortured him this time far worse than before. In his 10th, 10th arrest and eventual death in prison, he was asked this question, how do you have the courage to keep going in the face of constant arrests? Here's his reply. When I became a Christian, I died with Christ. And once you are dead, what men do to you cannot hurt you. With the end of Japanese occupation came an onslaught of communism, which would prove far more brutal than anything that the Japanese had done. Mass tortures, execution of many Christians. At one point, there was a church in a small town of 180 believers. The 
People's Police ordered that all of these church members come in for a political rally, required them at their required meetings, you must come. So these 180 members came into this small church building, packed themselves inside. Once they're inside, the People's Police barred all the doors and stood outside with guns ready to shoot anyone who came outside. They lit the wood frame building on fire and these precious believers sang in worship to God until the burning building collapsed over them and they were consumed in the fire. One more story that sums up both periods of persecution. It's an amazing story. Son Yangun, if you like these stories, you need to get a hold of this book. They're all out of this. Son Yangun was a pastor in a leper colony with about a thousand members. He refused to bow down to shrines and was arrested, but then released when Japanese occupation ended. But then during communist rule, his two oldest sons, Tongan and Tongsen, they were middle school students doing well academically with high hopes of moving on to university in America. One day though, in a communist revolt, a mob of students representing the communist party came onto their campus and knowing that these two boys were committed followers of Jesus, brought him out and began to beat these two young boys. Eventually a man named On, a leader of the mob, tortured, then shot and killed both boys. News came back to their father, Pastor Yangun, who learned that the revolt had been quieted and that the killer had been apprehended. And Pastor Yangun sent a messenger to the court pleading with the court to spare that young man's life who took his boy's life. And he went so far as to offer to adopt this young student on as his own son. Well, the judge, totally shocked, agreed, and Pastor Yangun adopted An as his own son. Years later, when communists invaded the leper colony that he had gone back to pastor, he refused to flee and instead remained with the people that he was pastoring. He was captured, tortured, later executed with about 75 others, and at his death, his adopted son, On, just wept over his dead body. John 12 makes no sense at all if this world is all there is. If life is all about possessions and pursuing the pleasures and delights of this world, then these brothers and sisters, they totally missed it. They should have lived it up in this world. But the reality is they didn't miss it. They didn't miss it. We're the ones tempted to miss it. I guarantee you that every one of these brothers and sisters, missionaries and martyrs alike, do not regret for one second hating their life in this world. Pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 26. If anyone serves me, must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now that is a precious promise. It's a sweet promise. But to be honored, death is required. Let me tell you where all of those brothers and sisters I just told you about are right now. They are with Jesus and the Father is honoring them. And I don't think they regret for one second hating their life in this world. 
to know life, to know real life, eternal life. I personally, I can't wait to meet all of these brothers and sisters in heaven. Well, interestingly, you know how YouTube just scrolls through video after video. One of them was of a, a modern day church that came up, stumbled across the story of a Presbyterian church in Seoul that was planted in 1993 with 3,000 members. So it's a larger church. The founding pastor of this church challenged his congregation at the time. He wanted to see them send out 2,000 missionaries. That would have been two-thirds of their entire congregation, and not just for short-term trips, but he desired that his one church would send 2,000 vocational missionaries around the world to the darkest corners of the world that they would go and bring the gospel to them. And within 25 years, this church had done it. They'd sent 2,000 missionaries. Now, their membership today, from what I understand, is around 20,000 members, so this is a very large church, but they've now sent 2,000 missionaries. That's over 10% of their current membership to overseas missions. They have close to 1,000 that are on the field right now. That means that this one church has over one-fourth of the total number of missionaries that the 40,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention have on the field right now, this one church. Just think about that goal. Think about if we were to make a similar kind of goal. We have 688 members. What if we made a goal to send out two-thirds of us to bring the gospel to places where there is little or no gospel being spoken of? You know how many members that would be? Anybody good with math? Not that good. 458. That would be 458 missionaries. In the 22 years that I've been at Emmanuel, 21 years, coming up on 22, we currently have 19 units of missionaries on the field, which is a somewhat high percentage compared to other churches in the U.S., but it's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. Of course, going is not the only way to care about missions and live your life for the kingdom of God. Funding missions, work around the world is also a great way to spend your resources. Why we're very excited as elders to be leading us to have a missions offering through the month of December this year. It'll begin next week where we hope to raise $75,000. Well, how might it all be possible? How might it be possible for you to give sacrificially, really sacrificially, for us to raise the kinds of funds, for us to send out something like two-thirds of us? How is any of that ever possible? There's only one way. A church has to die. A church has to die to itself. It has to die to sin. And it has to die to this world and it has to give itself to what matters most. And it really does start with every single member of the church dying to sin, dying to self, and dying to this world to where the entire church, from the least mature to the most mature of its members, are living as if Jesus is everything and we would sacrifice our very lives out of love for Christ, where that is the air that we breathe. This is basic Christianity. Which leads me to say, Emmanuel, let's die to our sin. Let's really die to our sin. Let's hate our sin. Let's run from our sin. Let's weep over our sin. Let's gouge, cut, and flee 
where sins are clinging closely. Let's hate our sin and let's die to self and give ourselves to praying with desperation. Let's live lives in deep dependence on the Lord for everything. Let's die to any and all self-reliance and let's die to this world and all the little luxuries and pleasures and pursuits that hinder us from running. We are not a people living for this world. We live for another world. Here again, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. Without death, no fruit. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Perhaps the reason your life is not bearing currently the kind of fruit you desire is because there is not enough dying. Consider what all this might mean for you personally. And think of a country today that's less than 1% Christian. There's several of them out there, Afghanistan, Yemen, the island of Sumatra. Is it possible to think of Afghanistan? We'll just take that one. Is it possible to think of Afghanistan having 10 million committed followers of Jesus 100 years from now? This is what happened in Korea. That very thing, and they're roughly the same amount of people. With man, you're right to think this is impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. If we would die, we will be shocked at the amount of fruit the Lord will produce through our death. If we would die, if we would die, the Lord can use that to advance his kingdom in very powerful ways. Don't you want to see a country like Afghanistan grow to be one of the world's largest missionary sending nations in the world? With God, it's possible because when a seed dies, it bears not just a little fruit, it bears much fruit. It's hard to die. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to die to yourself hard to die to sin. It's hard to die to this world. It's all hard. It's all costly, but it is worth it. To gain eternal life and to bear fruit, not just in this life, but also in the life to come, I long for this to be. I'm thankful. This is the story of the church in Korea. I long for this to be the story of the churches in America. I long for this to be the story of Emmanuel Baptist Church, that they would write of us a hundred years from now, you know what? Those people died, and out of their death came so much fruit. I wish there was an easier way for us to bear a lot of fruit for the kingdom of God, because dying is painful and difficult, but if we lose our life, we will find it, and if we keep our life, we will lose it. Your life, my life, our lives are a seed, and if you will let that seed fall into the ground and die, I'm confident that we will be shocked by the amount of fruit the Lord will produce through our death. Lord, make it so. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you lead us to apply this beautiful truth sincerely. Lord, help us where we need to die to various sins and to various loves of the world. Lord, would you lead us to die that we might live and would you use that death, our humble repentance, our earnest, desperate praying to save hundreds and thousands 
and millions. Would you do it all for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen.